Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. This is EWTN Global Catholic Radio, working in partnership with Guadalupe Radio. Of course, our show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. Great to be with you today, Gracie. I'm really looking forward to chatting with our guests. We have a great lineup for you today with George Weigel. He's the biographer of now Saint John Paul II, joining us as we celebrate 100 years of his life and teachings. And after that, we also have Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network for a Supreme Court Roundup. We're going to look at a new documentary on the life of Justice Clarence Thomas and her book on Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. Our radio show, Conversations with Consequences, is only about a year old, but our first guest today is already an old friend. We're thrilled to have a true Catholic scholar and gentleman, George Weigel, with us to reflect on a very special occasion. May 18th marks the St. John Paul II's, what would have been his 100th birthday. Mr. George Weigel's been kind enough to come and talk with us about him. Welcome, George Weigel. Thank you, Gracie. It's good to be back, and hello to Maureen Ferguson, an old friend uh, as well. So for all of us Catholics, St. John Paul II is, is a huge figure. Myself, I saw him as a little girl when he made his first international trip as a pope to Guadalajara, Mexico. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that the sight of his face, his frank, open, affectionate smile is still a memory that I treasure. It still shines in my heart and in my memory. And there are millions of Catholics just like me. But as his biographer, you wrote his authoritative biography, Witness to Hope and the follow-up, The End and the Beginning is the name of that book. You know very well that his mark on the world and on world history, on world culture, is even greater than the mark that he left on our hearts. So what stands out to you the most? There are so many ways to identify the greatness of of St. John Paul II. The world will remember his pivotal role in the collapse of European communism. The church should remember that this was the pope who proclaimed the new evangelization, a church of missionary disciples as Catholicism's grand strategy for the 21st century and the third millennium. Uh, We should all remember what a penetrating analyst he was of the human condition in general and the present cultural circumstances of the Western world in particular. Uh, Someone who's a longtime veteran of the pro-life movement like Maureen Ferguson will, of course, uh, remember him as as a great advocate for life. But what I'm going to be thinking about, particularly on on May 18th, is the fact that all of that accomplishment was the accomplishment of a radically converted Christian disciple. You can't understand John Paul II unless you understand him in those terms. Everything he did was an expression of his conviction that, as he once put it, Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. He truly believed that, and it was that conviction that enabled him to touch as many people as he did. So I think that's the first thing that that needs to be uh, recalled uh, at this centenary. We're talking about a radically converted Christian disciple. Everything else, the priest, the bishop, the pope, the statesman, the intellectual, the mystic, everything else grew out of that. It's fascinating, George, and this is Maureen. Thanks so much for joining us. What a delight to have you on. But, oh gosh, just as you were speaking, so many memories were flooding back. Like Gracie, I grew up during the papacy of John Paul II. He's, you know, was the only pope I remember of my childhood. And honestly, I feel like so many Catholics of our generation that the whole trajectory of my life was changed because of him. You know, as a young person, I was nine years old when I saw him when he, you know, passed by on the streets of Washington, D.C., 
and it made such an impression on me even as you know a nine-year-old girl later I followed him around the globe it seemed I went to World Youth Day in Poland right after the fall of communism another World Youth Day in Denver then as a newlywed in Rome we had an audience with him which included that newlywed blessing the Sposi Novelli blessing where you go with your uh, wedding veil on and it was there George that I first met you I don't even know if you remember our first meeting but we were Mike and I were on our honeymoon there and George is a friend of my husband so we literally bumped into you in St. Peter's Square near the obelisk and that was the first time I met you George. Believe it or not Maureen I do remember it so uh, (laughs) thank you for reminding me. Maybe I still have my veil on so maybe I was a memorable sight walking around with the wedding veil on. (laughs) Um, A pretty sight I'm sure Maureen. Uh, So for me of course and for all of us John Paul II was so remarkable on so many levels but one of the things I think that attracted me to him as a young woman who had grown up steeped in this feminist culture was the contrast of his beautiful vision of womanhood that he articulated just in such an amazing way and particularly well known is his speech to women in 1995 when he talked about the feminine genius and I'm wondering if you could just give us some reflections on that because I found his vision so much more attractive than the feminist vision that the culture was selling me. This is uh, one of the other facts about John Paul II that really is worth bringing back to everybody's attention on this centenary. This was the first pope in centuries who was formed as a young priest by intense interactions with young people, with young men and women whom he befriended when they were university students in Krakow during the worst of the communist period right after the Second World War. These men and women became not simply his spiritual children, but his close friends. Uh, Some 70 of them attended his funeral in in 2005, dressed in the old camping gear that they used to wear when out out kayaking and skiing with him. So he had an exceptionally interesting formation as a young priest, and that that included helping these young people work through all of the things we all work through in falling in love, getting married, having children, uh, raising a family. He knew all of this from the inside out. Now, he was a you know, very serious intellectual, so he turned all of that pastoral experience to uh, into grist for his intellectual mill, and that led first to the book Love and Responsibility, later to the, the Theology of the Body. But he, he learned all of this from experience. And so this was not a pope who had been uh, living in uh, exclusively or primarily male company for, for most of his life. This was, this was a pope who had been formed into a dynamic young priest by his interaction with, with young people. And that's really important, I think, in, in understanding him. Uh, it led to all of the things you described. It led to World Youth Days. It led to a new vitality in campus ministry around the Catholic Church. I mean, we all know all the problems of the church today because that's all we ever hear about from people outside the church. But, you know, many Catholics probably don't recognize that we're living, at least in the United States, in a kind of golden age of Catholic campus ministry. And that is due almost entirely to the example of John Paul II, and particularly to something you mentioned, Maureen, World Youth Day in Denver in 1993, out of which came, among many other things, uh, Focus, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, and a whole new approach to evangelization and catechesis on, on college and university campuses. All of that, to repeat and sum up, came out of his pastoral experience with young people in Stalinist-era Poland, where he was creating zones of freedom for these young people to explore the truths of faith and the truths of uh, shaping their own lives with his help. That's George Weigel. This is Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. The distortions and the dysfunctions of the sexual revolution have grown exponentially just in 
the last decade. Of course, I only need to point to the strides that transgender ideology has made in transforming every part of our society. You mentioned a moment ago John Paul II's theology of the body, which is, in my opinion, the definitive answer to the great quest for the authentic human anthropology. I think that you called it, George, a theological time bomb. What did you mean by that? Well, in, in the 550,000 words of Witness to Hope, the first volume of my uh, John Paul II biography, that's perhaps the phrase I wish I had not written. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> constantly being asked about it. And I, I, I mean, I, I think it's true. I meant it in a very specific sense, that this intense reflection on what it means to be embodied as male and female, the complementarity and fruitfulness built into that. I believed at the time, and still do, that that uh, effort of John Paul II would return sacramentality, the idea that the uh, transcendent lies just on the other side of the world we perceive, that the supernatural really is the real world, that what lies between the supernatural and, and the natural is more like a membrane than a hard border, much less a border wall. And, and we know this through the sacraments, through the water and oil and salt through which we, uh, with which we are baptized and christened, the oils of confirmation, the bread and wine of the Eucharist, marital love and fidelity. All of these are natural things that disclose the supernatural. That's what we mean by mm. sacramentality, and I thought the theology of the body would help do that. The, the theology of the body is, I think, a brilliant exposition of the human condition in general. It's not a magic bullet. It requires thought. It's, it's really well worth engaging because, as you say, it, it provides a much nobler view of who we are as human beings than, than a lot of the stuff that's on offer in the culture today. There's one other aspect of, of John Paul II's uh, teaching about marriage, family, and all the rest of it that I think bears emphasizing on this centenary, and that is his notion of freedom. Uh, freedom has been dumbed down to the word choice in our culture. Choice is the trump card that stops all political discussion throughout the Western world. John Paul II understood that this is essentially an infantile notion of freedom. Freedom as choice, period. I want to do this, therefore I, I should be able to do this. And, and the state should allow me to do this and even help me to do it. You know, that's like a two-year-old banging on the piano. Genuine freedom, mature freedom, adult freedom is choosing the good, choosing the good as a matter of habit, and choosing what we can know rationally to make for human happiness. Turning human beings into twitching little bundles of desires who just constantly keep chanting, that's my choice, dumbs down the human condition and thoroughly dumbs down the notion of freedom. So that's another great teaching of John Paul II worth recalling on this occasion. I, for one, am so glad you wrote that phrase, theological time bomb, because it certainly caught my attention, and I was sure to have uh, all of my teenagers take a class on John Paul II's Theology of the Body at their church youth group before heading off to college, and I feel like them having that authentic understanding of human anthropology has gone a really long way in putting them on a path towards happiness in in their life as single people now as you know whatever their vocation is in the future but you also mentioned this notion of freedom and the distorted notion of freedom john paul ii saint john paul ii of course spoke so much about the culture of life versus the culture of death and had such an incredible uh, incredibly profound impact on the pro-life movement in our country and in particular the impact of evangelium vitae would love to hear your thoughts on that and you know, at the time, or just after that was written, I was working in the, the pro-life movement, and uh, George W. Bush was president, and he had a lot of Catholics around him that were steeped in the papal language of the culture of life. And you heard that coming out President Bush's mouth. He, he really adopted that language of the culture of life. So anyway, we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, this is another aspect Maureen, of, of John Paul II's life that, that grows out of both experience and reflection. The 
formative experience of his entire life was the Second World War. There you saw the culture of death red in tooth and claw in the five years of the Nazi occupation of Poland, whereas one of his classmates during those years told me that the question was not whether you were going to be alive on your next birthday or next Christmas. The question for five years was, were you going to be alive tomorrow morning? Mm -hmm. that's, That's a dramatic situation in which the culture of death has literally taken over an entire society. And out of that was formed this rock-hard conviction in John Paul II that he was going to spend out his life posing the culture of death and lifting up what he eventually came to call the culture of life. That's that's important to, to recognize that. This is not an abstraction. I think he also understood that a culture of life was essential for a democracy. If democracies take it upon itself themselves to declare that some people are outside the community of common concern and legal protection, like the unborn child, they are on a road to catastrophe. And we've seen that play itself out in the euthanasia debate and all the rest of it. Evangelium Vitae, I have an interesting memory of that, in that some months after that encyclical came out, I was at dinner with with John Paul II, and he asked me how Evangelium Vitae was going over in the United States. And I said, well, I think it's it's having an impact. I just saw it being sold as a booklet in the checkout counter at my local supermarket. (laughs) Wow. Uh, He was was absolutely... Supermarkets were a little different in 1995 than they are today. Um, he was absolutely stunned by this. But I said, you know, people are interested in this. I think you've you've touched a chord here. And of course, that document has become a Magna Carta for the pro-life movement, uh, all of its expressions. And it was a remarkably prescient look at what really is a slippery slope. I remember, in respect to Evangelium Vitae, Father Richard John Newhouse writing that people had criticized Evangelium Vitae, saying that it was a slippery slope argument, that if you you permit abortion, you will eventually permit all sorts of other things. And and these critics were saying that's just not true. And Father Father Newhouse said, the question is not whether we're on a slippery slope. The question is how far down it are we, and can we put the brakes on? Mm -hmm. And so far, we've not learned yet how to put the brakes on. This is, as we know in our American context, Roe versus Wade was the worst Supreme Court decision since Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the country will come to recognize that and rebuild the culture of life, as indeed we're already doing through crisis pregnancy centers and all the help that's available to women in, in crisis pregnancies. That was something else that John Paul II insisted on. You can't just be out arguing about legislation. You have to be serving those in need. These women in crisis, their unborn children, their born children, the irresponsible men who often leave women in the lurch, all of these have to be the subjects of our pastoral care and concern. You know, we could talk for another uh, lifetime, I think, about Evangelium Vitae and, it, and its amazing consequences and, and the way it's informed all of us you know, in, our, in our quest to create a culture of life anew, as you say. But we do want to bring up, George, we want to talk to you about Pope John Paul II's amazing impact in uh, changing the course of world history the way he, he helped bring down the Iron Curtain. And I know you and I have spoken before on the air and off the air about uh, communism. I'm a Cuban-American, and it's it's an important topic for me. That's one of the things that uh, just, I, I know, resounds in, in history, his effect in changing that course uh, of world history that was going so terribly <laughs> and for so many years. This is what most Secular historians will remember John Paul II for. He was the pivotal figure, not the only figure, but the pivotal figure in the collapse of European communism. Why? Because he ignited the the revolution of conscience in Poland in June 1979 that spread like wildfire to other parts of Central and Eastern Europe, and that gave the collapse of communism in 1989 its, its distinctive texture. We have to remember that the 20th century's usual method of dramatic social change was mass slaughter. Mm-hmm. 
That didn't happen in 1989. Why didn't that happen? It happened, it didn't happen. The revolution of 1989 happened as it did, a nonviolent revolution, because John Paul II had ignited this revolution of conscience, which shaped the lives of both believers and non-believers, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, agnostics, atheists, people on the left and the right politically, came to understand that the best weapon in dealing with, with communism was what Václav Havel, would, uh, the Czechoslovak uh, dissident playwright and eventually president, called living in the truth. John Paul II inspired people to live in the truth, to live as if they were free, not to participate in the communist culture of the lie. Um, and that had uh, that gave people weapons of resistance that communism couldn't match. I mean, there had been other attempts to overthrow European communism in 1953, 1956, 1968, the the tinder that was already there and that that's what made a huge uh, difference and eventually i think that will play itself out in long suffering cuba as uh, well or at least i certainly hope so and pray so George, can you reflect a little bit about the Pope's relationship with Ronald Reagan at this time during the Cold War and their role in defeating communism? I know Carl Anderson of the Knights of Columbus, who used to work for President Reagan at this time and, of course, worked closely with John Paul II. He, he described the influence of the Pope. He said the forceful spiritual dynamic that John Paul II brought behind the Iron Curtain was absolutely essential in the fall of communism. Can you reflect a little bit about the relationship between the Pope and President at that time? Uh, let me begin, Maureen, by recommending uh, to people, especially as they're spending a lot of time at home these days, a terrific film that Carl Anderson and the Knights of Columbus sponsored called Liberating a Continent, John Paul II and the, and the Collapse of European Communism. It's about 90 minutes long. It's a brilliant evocation of that drama, and it's well worth spending some time watching. Watching. So the film Liberating a Continent. This whole discussion has been seriously messed up by Carl Bernstein of uh, Watergate fame, who you know proposed that you know what he called a holy alliance between John Paul II and, and President Reagan, as if there were some sort of conspiracy at work here. Uh, that's just not true. President Reagan and John Paul II worked along parallel lines. They had a similar analysis of the situation. I think they both believed that the communist emperor had fewer clo uh, clothes than anybody recognized. There was certainly sharing of information back and forth, but given that John Paul II knew far more about what was going on in Poland than anybody else, I doubt that that, was of, uh, that information sharing was, was particularly uh, decisive. I think what they both understood, President Reagan and, and John Paul II, was that the communist error was fundamentally a, a spiritual and moral error based on a distorted understanding of the human person, human aspirations, human destiny, and indeed human community. I think they both believe that telling the truth about that is an effective weapon against it. There was great respect uh, back and forth between these two men. Uh, they were not close friends. John Paul II respected President Reagan uh, as a man of conviction who was prepared to risk his political position for the sake of what he believed to be the truth. And that's, that was the acid test for John Paul II with, with political figures. Are they in this for themselves, or are they prepared to risk, risk their future, their political future, for what they believe is the right thing to do? So it was a very, very providential coincidence of presidency and, and pontificate, but the notion of some sort of holy alliance is a crazy Carl Bernstein conspiracy theory. 
George, I imagine that Poland must have been uh, must have been preparing for years for this for this date for the centenary of his birth, and and now I imagine also that many things have been called off. Were you planning to travel to Poland? I was supposed to be in Poland for about uh, eight days in Krakow and Warsaw, speaking at various centenary events, all of which have had to be uh, had to be postponed or canceled. So it's a shame, but perhaps the fact that people are at home will allow them to reflect a little more carefully uh, and at, at greater leisure on the meaning of John Paul II, on the lessons he tried to teach us for the future, you know, rather than having a big week of parties. He deserves well, more than that. Well, George, I can say in the Ferguson household, we will be celebrating at home, and every year I make the Pope's favorite Polish pastry. I will not attempt to pronounce the Polish this pastry, but I can tell you all it's very simple because I buy the pre-made puff pastry dough and you really just put vanilla sugar and layer it and voila Polish pastry and I serve it up to my firstborn son who was named John Paul. So we will be celebrating here at home and I'm sure um, all around the globe people will be celebrating this wonderful anniversary. Oh, I love that Maureen. You have to send me the recipe. I'm sure I'll butcher it as I do everything in the kitchen. <laughs> it's called Krymovsky. It's your dentist's favorite dessert. <laughs> <laughs> then it'll go very well over in my house where we always are. We're such good customers of the dentist. George, very good. George, we can't thank you enough for sharing some time with us today as we mark uh, John Paul II's 100th birthday. And uh, to our listeners, if you haven't read George Weigel's biography, uh, Witness to Hope, make sure you pick it up online. You might have a lot of time right now to read it. We highly recommend it. And of course, catch more of his work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. That's eppc.org. Thank you again, George. Thank you, Gracie. Thank you, Maureen. Good to be with you both. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Next, in conversations with consequences, we have Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network. Stay tuned to EWTN Radio. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and joined by my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. We're delighted to have the one and only Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network with us. She's a brilliant lawyer and author. Carrie, we're so grateful you're here with us today. Glad to be here. Well, Carrie, you're an expert on the attacks against Justice Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearing. You wrote a book, a national bestseller on the topic with Molly Hemingway of The Federalist. It's called Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Court. So I'm thinking you must have a lot of thoughts on other attacks that are going on right now. Yeah, it's been really funny watching, in, in one level, the similarity of some of these allegations where you've got someone who's decades old, old allegations being brought against a public figure, but how wildly differently uh, Tara Reid's claims against uh, former Vice President Biden are being treated versus Christine Blasey Ford's claims against uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And the sudden discovery of the concept of due process and the presumption of innocence by some of the same people who, during the Kavanaugh confirmation, could not run fast enough to throw all of those fundamental concepts mm -hmm. out the window and just say, guilty as charged. I don't have to hear any more. I don't care if there's corroboration. I don't care if there's any evidence. We, you know, he's out. And now with Biden, they're saying, well, actually, you know, it is important to make sure you check things and treat the woman with respect but also make sure we're being fair. like yes of course it's make sure you're being being fair you have to look at the evidence so on one hand I'm, I'm excited to see this rediscovery of important principles of the due process but on the other hand I really think there's a lot of Democrats right now who owed Brett Kavanaugh an apology and probably owe Clarence Thomas an apology and you know I'm sure there's others where they, they were they were more excited about the political hate to be made than about um, maintaining any sense of you know, you know, fairness in the process. 
You know, Carrie, this reminds me of back when Obama, um, President Obama was rolling out his so-called contraceptive mandate. I'm forgetting the name of the woman who was attacked. And there was this, you know, outcry over names that were used. But I think a lot of conservative women sometimes wonder, you know, these names get slung left and right. And, you know, sort of begs the question, you know, is it just, is it strictly media bias as to why certain things stick and others don't? Or, or is there something more at play? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. Even I, it was one of the outlets explaining why it took, you know, when the Kavanaugh allegations came out, it was like 48 hours between the first inklings of, hey, there's something here, and the full-blown, glowing, personalized version of, of uh, Christine Blasey Ford's story to be hitting the Washington Post. In this case, it actually took several weeks for that information to come out following the intercept, again, breaking the story, and it, not, no one really published anything of note until Easter Sunday morning. So obviously a few people were a little distracted. It was, it was not, it's not where you put your hot button news. And one of the explanations that, that someone gave is, well, you know, at that time, that was a really hot story and, and it, he was a very high profile figure. Everyone was really interested in, and that's why it deserved more attention than this is getting. And you're like, wait a minute, Joe Biden's running for president. Like, yeah, I know, I know we're, we also have this, you know, national crisis of, uh, of this virus going on, but I can't think of a more high profile uh, figure and, and I, I, I'm trying to stay very consistent here. I don't think we have we know enough to to declare anyone guilty, innocent here. However, if you're, if you're just comparing the claims on the on the mere facts, there is more corroboration here than there was for Blasey Ford, who we don't actually have hard evidence that she ever met Brett Kavanaugh, um, let alone have anyone simultaneous from from the actual contemporaneous time saying you know she talked about this in. In Tara Reid's case, you have people who said in 1993, she told me from her mother, her brother, her neighbor, a friend of hers, all saying, oh, yeah, I heard about this at the time. And you have the fact we all can verify that, yes, yeah, she did work for Biden. Well, I don't think we've done enough to, to understand what the truth or falsehood of these allegations are. It's certainly stronger than the Ford allegations. And it's frustrating to see people kind of without really examining their own behavior saying, oh no, this is a different thing. I, I think we all need to acknowledge everyone has their inherent biases, but we need to do everything we can to fight them and not just lean into them and say, oh, I like this guy. He must be innocent. I don't like this guy. He must be guilty. Do you feel that your book, reading your book is even more necessary to understand just how baseless the accusations were against Kavanaugh? Yeah, that's one of the reasons that Molly and I wanted to document what was going on at the time, because we knew there we we knew there's a real pattern of revisionist history that happens afterward, both revising the strength of the allegations. I saw that happen. Uh, we've seen it happen for decades now after Clarence Thomas's hearings. And when people who watched at the time, two to one, believed Clarence Thomas over Anita Hill. And now I think it would be flipped because people have been just rewriting the story. And also as a record of what people said, you have some of the very same people like Senator K Kamala Harris, for example, who was saying, oh, any amount of investigation they did is it simply wasn't enough into these allegations. She said this is an outrage because it's not really a search for truth. And then you ask, okay, now, wait a minute, you're endorsing Biden. Yeah, I know you're potentially on his vice presidential shortlist, so you've got you have vested interest in doing so, but where's the consistency? Are, are you concerned that there hasn't been a search for truth here? There hasn't been the Senate investigation. There hasn't been an FBI investigation. So it, I'm glad that we were able to document where everyone stood at that point, because now you can see the contrast. And unfortunately, history repeats itself. At this point, it's repeating itself, and then the actors are flipping some of their positions. So it's, it's very instructional to go back and look at it. Carrie, this is Ashley. I have a question that's sort of personal or it brings all of this to home in a personal way, watching what the Inquisition that Brett Kavanaugh went through and the way he was treated and even just the fact that he was from my neighborhood and seeing a good man's name tarnish, you know, with little girls. The question I remember asking myself at the time was, who would ever want to go through this ever again on either side? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're an upstanding person of character who's a Democrat or a Republican. And when my own husband had the opportunity to go through a Senate confirmation process, it was a real, it, it, for me, it was a real drawback. I, I did not want him to do it, largely because I'm so afraid of this kind of thing happening to him. We have
have this record number of judges that have been confirmed and still an extraordinary number of vacancies. Do you sense that this and, you know, what he went through has in any way held good men and women back from from stepping forward for for judgeships? Yeah, unfortunately, Ashley, I think that's part of the goal. I think they want people not to want to be, uh, you know, go through a process, whether it's to be in the in the Trump administration or to be a judicial nominee. And I know some people who have told me that they they didn't want to be considered for some of those positions specifically for that reason. You know, saying, yeah, you know what, I, I'm I, at a point where I'm, I'm just getting ready to go in for tenure or, you know, a different point in their career where they're going, I can't afford to potentially, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to get hammered on anything just because of my, because there you have a big target on your back. I think that was part of the goal. I do, I mean, you know, my goal is to see that that men and women would stand up for it, stand up to it. I think that's really important. We wrote in the final chapter kind of some thoughts on what happens next. And one of the stories I found really encouraging was that of Lisa Blatt. She is a Democratic liberal woman. She actually argued, I don't even know how many dozens of cases. She's the woman who has argued the most cases before the Supreme Court. She argued one just this first week when the when the Supreme Court came back to hear arguments. So she's really talented. But she actually, because she stood up for Kavanaugh and said, yeah, I don't agree with his politics on a lot of things. I might not agree with every decision he does, but he's a great judge and he should be confirmed. She basically had to leave her law firm. This is one of the highest practice practitioners, uh, Supreme Court practitioners in the in D.C. and had people who were just saying, I don't even want to associate with you anymore, had friendships that were ended as a result. But I was so impressed because, you know, I, I bounced some of my quotes that I had from talking to her and she goes, you know, I don't want to be a victim. I'm not a victim in this. I'm totally fine. I'm, you know, I, this is, if I lost friends over this it's their loss basically was the vibe and I thought she is, it was so it was such a model of courage that a lot of people who were actually much closer to the Kavanaugh's or to other people involved in this who were afraid to stand up I think the more of us who are willing to say you know what we're going to stand up, even though we know we're going to be the source of, you know, we're going to draw some fire here. The more people that do that, the more it lowers the cost of standing up for everyone. Because if we allow ourselves to be intimidated for standing up for our beliefs, whatever they are, whether it's in the political sphere, whether it's in the religious sphere, it just makes it easier the next time and the next time to then be effectively silenced through that kind of intimidation. Inspiring words from Carrie Severino from the Judicial Crisis Network. This is EWTN Radio's conversation conversations with consequences. Carrie, it's starting to seem to me that only women can run for office, that the Me Too or run for or be, you know, be exposed in these public platforms. Maybe only conservative women can do it, or maybe the Me Too movement is going to go on and start biting women. What do you think? Well, I've heard some people say that, well, maybe we just have to pick female nominees from now on. But I, I have to say, I don't know that they're going to get treated any better. Remember, of course, what happened to Amy Coney Barrett when she was nominated. That's I think true. if anything, the left is more threatened and more frightened by articulate conservative women, <laughs> and uh, particularly in her case, articulate faithful Catholic women than, than they are of anyone else. So she was actually singled out because she was a successful woman for that those kinds of attacks. It might not be the same kind of Me Too claims, but I don't think they're going to pull any punches if a woman is placed up there. And unfortunately, what we're seeing through the this Biden allegations is at the end of the day, it's not really about the fundamental principles of the Me Too movement, which is about trying to make sure when men are not abusing their positions of power to sexually uh, intimidate, assault, uh, harass women. I mean, that's that is a goal I think all of us can stand behind. But what some of these players in the in the movement are showing is that's not their fundamental driving factor. That maybe the fundamental driving factor for many people is actually just politics, which is which is unfortunate. But what that says to me is. It's not going to be about whether you nominate a woman or a man or whatever for something. It's going to be is are the political what are the political forces arrayed against them because they're mm-hmm. going to find something to attack them on if they disagree politically. Carrie, speaking of courageous women, going to be a very interesting day um, for the little sisters of the poor who you know as our our listeners are probably familiar with their long-standing ongoing case, their fight to be able to live out their mission, caring for the dying elderly poor, which, you know, a mission that's never been more critically needed than now. Their homes are are, are really being hit by the coronavirus. Uh, we'll be back at the Supreme Court because certain attorneys general in the country just won't relent in um, their fight against them. But what's so interesting, and I, even I didn't realize this until yesterday, that the oral argument is actually going to take place over the phone. And my, <laughs> I'm, I think 
this is unprecedented. Carrie, what what do you think this will look like? I mean, is this going to work? Yeah, it's funny. You said they'll be back at the Supreme Court, but they won't. They'll be at, yeah. <laughs> they'll be at home. Um, I mean, I guess it means it's easier for all of them, not just some of the, not just a few of the sisters to attend the argument, right? But yeah, it's a really, you know, this is obviously an unprecedented time in American history. And even when there have been, there, you know, there have been epidemics that caused the court to actually close down um, in history before, but never before have they had the technology to be able to say, okay, we're going to still hold arguments. It's just that it's going to be over a, in a remote forum. They just started that and it actually it seems to be working really well it's a phone thing so you can't see the justices but it's a teleform effectively and one of the things that's really interesting you know I clerked for Justice Thomas so following him in the arguments he is known as not asking many questions part of it is he said he feels that the way that it's chaotic and people are interrupting each other and they're not even letting the, the, the advocates finish their sentences before they jump in with another question he thinks it's really disrespectful to the litigants and to the process on the phone they have a different system. So you don't just jump in whenever they have to go in order of seniority. And so we saw him asking questions. I mean, this is something that happens once a decade historically. <laughs> and he asked quite a few questions during the argument. So it's uh, it, it has provided a different type of process. But boy, it, it's, it's a challenge, I think, as the lawyers making the arguments, because you can't see their faces. You can't get the feedback from the justices that you normally would get. On a positive note, though, if anyone wants to listen to the arguments, you can do so, and C-SPAN is holding them live. Carrie, I'm so glad you brought up Justice Thomas because we know that you clerked for him, and that's really interesting. <laughs> but also the fact that on May 15th, there will be airing on PBS a very interesting documentary about Clarence Thomas called Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. And I suppose you've seen the documentary already? Uh, yes, I have actually seen it several times. I got, have gone to a few different screenings of it, and it's. I feel like I've, I've learned so much about someone who I already knew really well, but got to learn a lot about him just in the process of seeing this documentary, especially with some of the visuals that they found. Carrie, I haven't had the chance to see the documentary, but I would say that his autobiography is probably one of my favorite books that I've ever read, and I felt like it was so important that he wrote that book to set the the record straight on so many things about him and uh, just a side note I absolutely loved the audio version too because he's, he's got such a wonderful voice but what do you think they get right in the documentary and what do you think they get wrong or do you think it's a fair that it, it captures him fairly one of the interesting things about it is the entire thing is really in his own words there are a few parts where his wife Ginny is interviewed too but it's almost all just him first person telling the story so in some ways it's kind of like the movie version of my grandfather's son his book but it actually goes into detail in different areas of his life with additional stories and things that uh, that I don't remember from the book or some of some of which I didn't even remember from talking to him and the stories he would tell. One of the ones my kids loved, and I, I did show some of it when he gets into the allegations about, you know, during his confirmation process, you know, there are parts that are not suitable for all ages. But I do think that it's an incredibly important piece of history that I would say if you've got a high schooler up for sure, I, I, my middle schooler saw it and I thought it was, it was, it was very valuable. But one of the kids, things my kids loved at the beginning is he was uh, so excited with his brother to move in with his grandparents because they were living such a, a really uh, impoverished existence that one of the things they thought was cool was they had a, a toilet and they would just find excuses to walk past the bathroom and flush the toilet every chance Aww. they get which, <laughs> which drove his grandparents crazy because they're like you're wasting money and this is gonna water but but they just thought flushing the toilet was such an amazing you know game to them so it, it just gives you these perspectives is where you're like, how do you even imagine what it's like to, to come from that and then end up being one of the most accomplished and really powerful members of the United States government? It's incredible. Carrie, you know, Justice Thomas is this American success story. He, he proves that old adage, which is absolutely true, that in America, a poor boy can become anything, a poor girl can become anything. On the same token, he is rejected by, by so many, even though he is an African-American and has, has gone so far and triumphed over so much. Why do you think he is treated like that? Yeah, I mean, well, this is one of the things that the, that the documentary goes into. His, you know, it, it really his arc of the development of his character, where he starts out being raised by his grandparents and then had a very, you know, he was in seminary for a while, had a really, he kind of rejected the faith, became very active in the black power movement, and then eventually worked his way back really to his conservative roots and to his Catholic roots. But how he, when he, 
came to a place where he felt politically he with these conservative principles how so many people turned against him and they really they were they were only happy to hear an african-american voice if it was saying what they expected so he said this is this is actually a worse kind of slavery and a worse kind of poverty if i don't even have the right to have my own thoughts that i have to believe like you are telling me to believe uh so that that was really powerful his experience of the way he was targeted there's also an, a really powerful montage showing some of the outright racist attacks on him when he first came on the court depicting him as a, a lawn jockey and as a in, in a in kkk robes and you know really shocking um because he was so vilified and he would say it's because you know you're not allowed to be a black conservative and that's a, a real problem in our society if we want to put if we're trying to put people into you know holes and say you're only allowed to believe what what we decide your ethnic group or your gender or your whatever is going is allowed to uh to believe i think a lot of people don't realize what a deep man of faith justice thomas is and i know we're running out of time but maybe give us a snapshot of your impression of him as a man of faith and the role of of faith in his life yeah i mean that was one of the great things about working for him is seeing that side of him as i said he he was actually in seminary and he was one of the reasons he ended up leaving was he was it was frustrated he was so frustrated to see the racism within the seminary it itself. He was one of the only black students there. But he also talks about how the Irish nuns who taught who taught him were some of the the most amazing women. And they always were they were teaching at a segregated school. It was against the law to uh, to have black and white children studying together in Georgia at the time. And and they were standing for those rights. But, you know, if you I, I always think if you look at his office, you can kind of see who the man is. And one of some of the powerful things I think are in there are, are on the wall, the litany of humility. If you haven't read this prayer, it's so beautiful. And I think it's so crystallizes what Justice Thomas has uh, learned the hard way, I think, through <laughs> through his entire life and through the way he's been attacked. And it, it's it's very difficult prayer. It's all of these, you know, Lord, that others may be chosen before me, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be, you know, that, that I would be not afraid of being mocked and being derided. It's something that he really lives. He's got a statue of his statue of St. Thomas More and a statue of St. Jude that he won when he was in, I think it was in the seminary or maybe it was in, in grade school before that, that he was very proud of he maintains in his office so I always remember too I once when my husband was asking him for advice on in the next job step in his career he was doing and he one of his final closing pieces of advice is you know take it to the blessed sacrament go and pray before the the blessed sacrament and that's how you can make your decision and even before he came back to the church, during some of these hardest parts of his life, you know, well, he would, well, he was feeling really alone in D.C. He said he was he would go to the church and and just spend time there in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and how much peace that brought to him. And so that tells you that even even during the times when he wasn't even back in the in the fold of Mother Church, he was really responding to grace in his life. And so it's it's just a beautiful a beautiful witness, and he continues to have be that you know that. Kind Kind of light to the people around him, whether it's his clerks or his colleagues or everyone from the janitor to the marshals to everyone in the, in the court. Now he's he's widely known as being one of the most open and and loving and friendly people to work with. Uh, so it's just a beautiful lesson in faith. Film will air May 18th on PBS. Make sure to check it out and also pick up Carrie Severino's book Justice on Trial. Find out more about Carrie and the Judicial Crisis Network by visiting judicialnetwork.com. And thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us today. Great to be here. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. It's Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Jesus will speak to us words that are relevant not only during the time of the pandemic, but always. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he tells us. You have faith in God, have faith also in me. He wants to calm our hearts by assuring us that he's going to prepare a place for each of us in his Father's house, so that where he is, we also will be. This refers not just to eternity, it refers to the fact that right now he's going to prepare a place in the Father's house for us, for our prayers, for our hopes, for our sorrows, for our joys, so that we might be with him where he is. When he told the apostles, where I'm going, you know the way, meaning what he had already told them three times, that he would be handed over to death and the third day rise. St. Thomas protested the apostles neither knew Jesus' destination or path. That's when Jesus summarized everything for them and for us, one of the most famous phrases he ever stated. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, reminding us that no one can come to the Father's house except through him. We've heard this self-description as the way, the truth, and the life so many times that Jesus' revolutionary words lose their shock value. But to first century listeners, they would have heard Jesus saying that he was the full realization of their three deepest religious aspirations. The Jews had been praying for centuries, teach me your way, O Lord. Jesus was saying, I am the way. They'd been imploring God, teach me your decrees that I may walk in your truth. Jesus was saying, I am the truth. They'd been begging, show me the path of life. And Jesus was indicating, I am the life. Jesus was saying that he was the personification of all their religious aspirations and the answer to so many of their most insistent prayers. But what does it mean to build our life on Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life? We can look at each of his affirmations individually and see, I am the way. Probably every single one of us has had the experience of being lost when we're driving. Jesus doesn't so much give us directions, but he personalizes our direction in life when he comes and says to us, follow me. But the most important thing is not just to know that Jesus is the way, but to follow him on the way he indicates. We know his way isn't popular or easy because it's the way of the cross, not the way of the crowds. It's the way of the Beatitudes, not the way of worldly fame, fetishes, and fortune. Jesus' way is an uphill climb. To be a Christian means to build our path on his path, to journey with him in the world, knowing that he's with us each step. I am the truth. The day after Jesus pronounced these words to the apostles, Pilate asked him, what is truth? Truth is the correspondence between something, a phrase, a thought, an idea, and reality. When Jesus says that he is the truth, what he's ultimately declaring is that that he's the ground of all reality, that he's what's most real. That after everything passes away, including our own body, God still is. Many in the world can treat other things as more real than Jesus and the truths of faith. Cynically, they can think that reality is what the politicians decree, or the strength of military might, or the consequences of scientific discoveries, or the clothes we're wearing, the money in our pockets, or the silly reality shows we're watching. But the real world is where God is the world we enter in prayer and the sacraments in God's word and life according to the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that he not only teaches truths, but that he is the truth. And he summons us to build our life on him as our rock so that we can withstand all the storms that inevitably come. I am the life. Jesus is more than just alive. He is life incarnate. We not only owe our physical life to him, but we also owe our spiritual life to him. God willing, we'll be able to thank him for eternal life as well. Jesus, as he said to us in last Sunday's gospel, came so that we might have life and have it to the full. But he doesn't force that life on us. He wants us to choose to live off of him, to draw our very existence from him. We do this, of course, in the sacraments and prayer and the moral life of love. But the life of Jesus is more than simply batteries for our soul that keep us going. It's meant to be the principle of our existence so that eventually we're able to say with St. Paul, it's no longer even I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life up for me. Whereas the world believes that the most important things in life, that the essential foundations are money, property, education, influence, and health, we recognize that it's a relationship with Jesus. The most important thing in life, we realize, is this personal discovery of the Lord as our Savior and this personal life-changing and life-giving friendship he offers. This Sunday, we'll have the chance to have this consequential conversation with Jesus, to follow him to the upper room, to Calvary, and from the empty tomb, to hear his truth. We ask him to get us ready so that when we do, We might follow him all our days. We may believe his truths and teach others those same gifts. And that we might draw our life from him just as much as he drew his life from the Father. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. 
You can listen to us on the radio at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130, or listen to the show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 